Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malamud. And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was now that I talk to Elliot regularly. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. This is part one of a three-part series about being Jewish, recorded pre-pandemic when we were allowed to gather. The theme of part one, have we made it harder than it should be to be Jewish? We're hoping to get people to talk to us and to each other, and we don't mind about disagreements whatsoever. Uh, In fact, what we're interested in is starting off with a, a question about the thing that is wrong with Judaism is, and let's just start. And I'd be more than happy to have other people participate as opposed to necessarily us. So if you want, you could give us your name or not, but just start. So the question is, the thing that is wrong with Judaism is... I'm going to reframe the issue for me. Not not what's wrong with it, but where there's a challenge, family-centric. Those of us who don't have the privilege of being part of a family or established our own family and want to be part of community, but we feel perhaps regarded as... So you think Judaism does that where it creates a dynamic that only sort of nuclear family or people who have an existing surrounding environment are welcome and anyone who's an outsider has trouble entering? Is that what you're suggesting? I don't think it's an explicit, you know, you're not welcome if you're not part of the family. Understood. It is like, you know, by its nature, a family-centric, you know, having established your own family, it could feel very difficult. It can be exclusionary. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that? Um, not so much in Canada, but back in Europe, yes. I felt like after war, don't, don't say that you're Jewish, just be part of the, the regular landscape, and yeah, so you felt excluded. That's a different kind of exclusion. You're talking about yeah, exclusion. I'm, I'm She's talking about yeah. exclusion from within, and you're talking yes, about exclusion exactly from without. Right, yeah. But I actually talking about Sometimes it feels that we are excluding Jews, excluding others. So, um, so by being exclusive, we're excluding of those who don't have a framework of family, and we're also by being exclusive, we don't always fit into the so greater society. Like, right. So know, it's yeah. it's tough to be Jewish, right? No, that in that sense, it sort of feels good to be Jewish. You can't join our club. Oh, I don't know about that. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think the role of the rabbi has to change. Which rabbi? This rabbi or no, general? Yossi, you, you. I don't know you, you. well enough, Yossi. Okay. In general. Meaning? In today's society of where people are, less people are coming to the synagogue, what is going to attract them? And the, the role of the rabbi as you know, the preacher and the, the teacher, etc., has to change. So I would I would suggest, do you want to add something? Well, uh, do you just always agree with him because you're married? Okay, go on. <laughs> do it. The, the internet's made the biggest change because people now don't go to the rabbi to ask the questions they used to ask. They go on to Google, so therefore the role of the rabbi has to change. So I, I would say, and Elliot, you can feel free to jump down my throat if you want, um, I think the role of God has to change. I think that people are using God as a big fat hammer 
smashing other Jews over the head. Rabbis are conveying the word of God, so to speak. And I actually think people talk about God too much. And I think that the role of a rabbi should be to make it, out making it um, inaccessible. Okay. Really? Yeah, really. really? Yes. Jews talk about God too much. Oh, really? I can't take it anymore. Really? Whenever Jews run out of a reason to do something, they're, oh, they always default back to God. But until they run out of reasons, it's all reason, rationale, and, you know, and psychological. But when they run out of an excuse, it's... Because Hashem said, well, you're talking about a very tiny piece, right? The Don't look at me like that. Yeah. Just answer yeah. the question. Look, I got to tell you a story, okay? It has nothing to do with Judaism. It has to do with ZZ Top, which is a great band. So the lead guitarist of ZZ Top is a man named Billy Gibbons. And Billy Gibbons is one of the great blues guitarists in the world. When he was a young guitarist, he shared a dressing room with B.B. King. And B.B. King, who's the man, came over to play your guitar. So he said, sure. So he picked it up. Like noodled with the strings a little bit. And he said to Billy Gibbons, why are you working so hard? And what he meant by that was that he was using kind of heavier gauge strings. If you play guitar, they're harder to bend. So Billy Gibbons tells this story about how he switched to light gauge strings. But I love that sentence because for all the years that I taught in university, Jewish studies, and I had Christian students, that's basically what they think. Why are you working so hard? You yeah. Jews... You make this thing, you make a God, and then you make that God almost impossible to access. You make him invisible and unknowable and unreachable. Now, I'm not saying we should all leave the room and, you know, do Jesus, but I'm saying that we have created a God that's almost untalkable. Too much God? You got to be kidding. Jews don't talk about God. Jews are frightened stiff of God. No, except our liturgy hasn't kept up with that. Our liturgy is okay. still still, yeah, that's true. still horribly... Uh, and I'm not suggesting... I like the literature. I just think we should have a big disclaimer on it that says, this is the way our ancestors spoke, but we don't have to. Um, and I think that what I'm talking about God is that the synagogue is so God-centric that it doesn't match anything else in the rest of our lives. What do you want it to be? Uh, I really would like to be a big kiddish. I think people should come together. I think it's about getting to know people. It's about good people getting together to do good things. I'd much rather see people come and study Torah and shul than pray. Really, I'd really much rather that. I'd rather we have an open conversation. I'd rather that the, the cantors, everything was shrunk, and that the center of Jewish life was the study of the parasha in combination with the communal engagement and food and all those things. I don't understand how Shabbat became this a, a religious festival when really it's a family festival. So I don't you understand. You turn Shul basically into like an intellectual JCC. Not intellectual. Yeah. Well, that's the learning part. No, I want it to be a JCC. Essentially. I just want it to be a JCC. I, I am still angry that in Toronto, the JCC. The JCCs are not allowed to offer uh, a cafeteria service on Shabbat. In Israel, you can go to the Hilton and have full hot buffet on Shabbat. But in Toronto, we couldn't figure out how to allow our JCCs to have food. I'm, I'm upset that, in, that, in, that we couldn't find a way to have hot food in the JCC here because of religious restrictions or because they would compete with synagogues. And the idea that a JCC could no longer function as a family venue, like a family-style service on Shabbat morning where families can just get together and, and, and hang out troubles me. There was a big uh, debate in Baltimore about this, a big fight about it, but over here it's not even an issue. If it were up to me, the JCC would be offering Shabbat lunch and families can get together and have, you know, events on Shabbat in their own expression of Shabbat, the day of the family, a day of rest. That's how I feel. So let me see if I have this straight. You think there's too much God in Judaism but not enough food? 
Is that, is that what you're trying to pull over here? Uh, no. Uh, I've been going not to jail for all my adult life, and there's no God and tons of food. Not enough hot food. Okay. No, not enough hot food. Oh, okay. All right. I won't argue with you there. Okay, so um, what would you do to change to change what uh, as a as a concern? It's a very big question, and it's hard to answer. You know, on one foot. I mean, I, look, I, I think it's beautiful that things are family-centric. I think family is important, but for those of us who haven't, you know, walked that path, not because we don't want to, just haven't arrived there yet, it, you know, it's a challenge. I mean, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe we need to have more thought about what other people are going through. I mean, this is a big existential thing, and how do we get out of our own to think about what other people are going through. And maybe we need to remember that there are people who need surrogate families or need some kind of construct to feel welcome, not just like a food kitchen where you go eat someone's food and you have no, don't develop a connection with them. I'm not, I can feed myself. I'm not looking for food. I'm looking for community, for relationship building, for friendships, you know, like, there could be a little bit of more openness among the rabbis and the community that not everything is 20s and 30s. Like, I mean, this happens in New York too. Everything is for 20s and 30s. And like, all of a sudden, you become 38. You're not as valuable a member of a community. And it seems very heretical to me. Like, if we're all supposed to be valuable, then don't we have as much worth at 45 as we do at 28, you know? I agree. I don't think... I. I mean, I always found women more interesting after they hit 50, anyhow. So that's, uh, at men, 90. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. take a bit longer to mature. A little bit. You want to talk about that uh, the demographic? No, I mean, look, there is, a, there is a kind of inherent structural problem that Judaism is organized around family life about continuity. Um, and continuity is a kind of obsessive preoccupation of... Judaism at all times, and certainly post-Holocaust Judaism is um, organized financially and existentially around the theme of continuity. Um, I don't have any genius practical uh, advice as to how it would be different, but I do agree that there needs to be community building across the board, not just with people or families. How that would be done requires thought. I don't have like a genius answer. I have to think about it. That's the truth. I also think that looking at the funding model, there's a lot more funding for that age group than any other. And uh, I think it's, Sally like it says, it is an obsession with continuity. It's the post-birthright continuity, and that's where the great effort's been made. Like every other effort in Judaism, people will ultimately discover there is no, there's no secret to continuity, and it, has, it does not begin at 20s and 30s. It begins at seven or eight, you know? I'm a big believer that we should focus on better B'nai Mitzvah experiences. I think that's where it all starts, ultimately. I think the first time a child is introduced to Jewish public life should not be a place where they're uncomfortable. That's just, that's the kind of thing. Anyhow, it's worth a long debate. There was a hand up. Oh, Elliot. I just want to add that there are certain demographic facts of Judaism that are important to realize. In 1990 came out the first um, Jewish population survey, National Jewish Population Survey. What did it show? It showed that Jews are intermarrying at rates that were unprecedented for since the 19th century. That sent all Jewish communities into you know paroxysms of 
um, anxiety. And since that time, probably billions of dollars have been spent. And what has occurred? They haven't moved the needle at all for all of that money. I'm not suggesting that it shouldn't have been spent. What I am suggesting is that there are permanent facts about the modern world, which is that people are free. And free people will choose who they're going to be in love with, who they're going to marry, etc. So the intermarriage rate only continues to rise because that's an inevitable product of freedom. So the issue, in a larger sense, is whether we should be preoccupied by having continuity with people who don't want to continue as Jews, or whether all those that time, money, resources, energy, man, man and lady power should be put into people who have shown some kind of inclination to remain part of the Jewish project. That's the bigger picture. On top of the continuity picture. Who's next? You had a question? Uh, there's an age difference, obviously, here, so, so our perspectives might be different. But I want to say that all organized religions, or many organized religions, have the same uh, interest in family, you know, so that's not different. I'm on the outside, and uh, I can, I, I'm really surprised at all of the things that are offered at different shows. I've gone to several. And for different age groups, so yeah. I'm kind of surprised. I've been welcomed that people don't know me, and I'll walk in the door, and there's already three or four people welcoming me and asking me questions and letting me know what's going on in the show. So I'm much older. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, I'm just surprised because I find that actually I'm experiencing the opposite. So Elliot whispers in my ear, I've been as orthodox. You have to understand, um, like no, any opposite way. Go ahead. I'm just curious if there's a friendliness ethos across the board in denominations or not. Like whether certain denominations are friendlier or less friendly. I'm speaking from a position of ignorance because I live in Israel where denominations are completely irrelevant. Okay, I just, just say that I've also gone to which I really, I can I like. Um, that's it, for instance, and both are awesome. I, I don't think it's an issue of people being welcoming. Everyone's got a brand they want to promote, and they're, and they're desperate to build their, their congregations. There, there's many reasons why shuls are welcoming and why shuls are not. There could be bad management. There could be, you know, the shuls are decaying. Some shuls are vibrant. I think the real issue is, is larger than that, which is, Elliot and mm, over there is touching on it, the idea that that there's, there's an in-between that is not being spoken of, and we're focusing on one too much, we're ignoring another. Uh, to your credit, you probably see the positive in places, right? And uh, not everybody not everybody gets that feeling. Sometimes when people are searching, it's just hard to know, and you might not even know what you're looking for. You're looking for something, and it's not hard to, and Toronto's not an easy city to find it in. It's a small city. Small and uh, relatively from the Jewish population, it's it's very. I mean, it doesn't even come close to comparing to New York, for example. Nothing really does, and Israel certainly not. Okay, uh, let's take one more one more question on this, and we'll move on to something else. You want to move on? Uh, I was going to address sort of this topic as well. Sure. So I'm looking at this from a bit of a different perspective because I'm approaching my late twenties, and for me, um, I grew up in a secular family. I've always thought that if I get married and have kids, I would want my kids to get more Jewish education than I did. So for me, the family-oriented focus of some aspects of Judaism is actually a huge plus. It's something that's drawing me more to Judaism right now, especially at this point in my life. Um, but again, I know it's a different thing based on 
how old you are, life cycle, you know, denominations, cities, a lot of different factors. Um, one thing, and I'm just being brutally honest, one thing that I found disappointing is that I find, I, I wish orthodoxy delivered what it promises more. Um, it, it, sometimes it looks very appealing for, for me, at least for me, originally it looked more appealing from the outside when I knew less about it. Um, and just seeing some of the shift towards extremism lately and just some of the problems with, um, how can I put this? Not, it's, it's not even a problem not having women in positions of leadership. It's also sometimes a problem of not allowing women to take ownership for their own issues. So there was an issue, I think this was in New York recently, but there was an orthodox, a group of orthodox women who wanted to have an all-woman ambulance for modesty reasons, and they couldn't because uh, I think the men in that community said, well, it would be inappropriate for women to work in that space. So it's kind of like, you know, half a dozen of one thing, six of another. So it, it just feels messy um, in a way that I feel like it doesn't need to be. And I think that's disappointing because for me, and I'm sure for at least some other people, I feel like orthodoxy has promised, like there's an appeal to it. Um, I like the family-oriented culture. I like the stability. I like the uh, stricter adherence to halakha, but when you get more into it, you start to see all of these problems that I feel like at least half of them could have been easily avoided. But not not that I'm I have all the answers to all the problems in the world. But okay, so Elliot and I are very different in the sense that Elliot is orthodox, and I grew up ultra orthodox, and I'm no longer, and we disagree on many of those things. We still love each other; it doesn't matter. Um, and I think all religion is messy. I don't I don't think any religion I don't think any religion anywhere can claim to really resolve everybody's challenges. And I mean I could comment about that ambulance thing because I come from that ultra orthodox world. I'm very aware of the problems. Yeah. I'm very aware. And I choose not to overemphasize them because it's easy to overemphasize, right. you know, the the gaps. And your your original premise that they may make promises they can't deliver is probably true for most things. Um it, it, it that one of the, the great problems with religion is that religion, for me, is not a thing into itself. Religion is the expression of people who are religious, as opposed to just a, an existing body of conduct or code. Uh, I'm not a big fan of religion, religion in the sense that, I know it sounds weird, but you're a rabbi, but the, the, the real issue is religion is the expression of what, what your values are. Religion on its own is nothing. So that's what religion is a zeros with no number in front of it. Um, I, I urge you to find a more moderate version of orthodoxy because what you're talking about is, even the ambulance thing is quite an extreme. So if you're gonna find that rigid stability, you're also gonna find the rigid inflexibility. So you gotta be careful what you choose, but I think the pursuit of something meaningful is really is worth doing. Do people not say Shabbat Shalom to you? I mean, so part that you were talking about is that it's a religious thing, but in some ways it's a it's where do you live thing. Where do you live? What do you look so like? So Toronto to me is a very unfriendly place. It's a very parochial place. Um, uh, I've lived here for many, many, many years, and you could walk into Shul and be invisible. In fact, if you were invited somewhere, it would either be somebody who was from out of town, and everybody I spoke to had the same experience. It was either from out of town or they were because there's a real cliqueishness, certainly in the Orthodox community in this city, a real cliqueishness, a real kind of, we got eight brothers and sisters who lived down the block from us, so we don't need to know you. 
Um, and that was my consistent experience. Now, I didn't care because it wasn't material to me, but I had people complain about this over and over and over again. But I did want to ask you a question because I was intrigued by what you said. You talked about orthodoxy not delivering on what it's promised, and I'm completely empathic yeah, to that. To uh, what do you, did you think that orthodoxy promised equality? You have to define equality. Right. Well, you gave examples of equality, examples that I agree with, right. but orthodoxy doesn't promise equality. For, for me, it's not. I, I knew that, for example, going back to the women's issues thing, I knew that there were more, much more rigid gender roles in orthodoxy than, say, you know, mainstream North America nowadays. So that wasn't, I don't think I was completely delusional about that. I, I just, I guess I didn't anticipate some of the problems as well. Like, like, the way that I saw it was, you know, men and women have different goals, but women's issues are also being addressed, and I didn't, I didn't even know about, you know, women being blurred out in magazines until... And again, I don't want to overemphasize these problems that sometimes only exist in extreme communities, as if, you know, it's, it's universal. Right. I mean, those aren't really extreme examples. What are means to more poignant examples are ones that are actually dealing with the actual daily life of synagogues. For instance, why can't women read from the Torah, why can't they speak from the Bima, why can't they, etc. Those are not extreme examples. But orthodoxy doesn't promise equality. And, but I think we should connect the dots here, right? Because I talked a moment ago about continuity and the obsession of continuity. So partly, certainly post-war orthodoxy is product of great fear and even paranoia about continuity. And so the feeling, it's in COVID almost, the feeling that It'll be like the slippery slope, and it'll dismantle the system, and it'll all come tumbling down, is behind everything. It's underneath everything. It's this psychic anxiety that change will lead to secularization, which will lead to assimilation, which will lead to destruction. And because that drives so much of orthodox policymaking, you get actually these incredibly irrational, pre-modern, medieval decisions about what seem to me basic tenets of equality. That's remarkably objectionable. And it's led to, as you said, the kind of extremist parochialization of orthodoxy, which is alienating to a lot of people. That to me is much more worrisome than, you know, the extreme examples that you cited, which are in certain communities. But this fear of progression is, is a huge problem. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.